Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. Now this week, this is the final week of the year, an end to uh, 2022, which will be a year that I think many investors will prefer to forget, though hopefully they'll learn some lessons from what's happened this year. I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Sebastian Lyon, who is the manager of the Personal Assets Trust and also uh, CEO of Troy Asset Management, which has a number of open-ended funds as well as the Personal Assets Investment Trust. Personal Assets, as many listeners will know, is a self-managed investment trust, which was taken over by uh, Ian Rushbrook and Robin Angus back in the early 1990s. I remember that occasion well. And since 2008 has been managed by Sebastian following the untimely death of Ian Rushbrook, who was a great uh, visionary and a great expert on investment trusts and many other things. This year also, sadly, we saw the death of Robin Angus, who had as I said, with Ian Rushbrook taken over the management of what was then a very small failing investment trust, personal assets. And they've turned it into what today has become a remarkable phenomenon. Uh, having started, I think, with just a few million, it's now capitalised at uh, somewhere in the region of 1.8 billion. So much to talk about this year. And we'll come back to uh, Robin Angus towards the end of the podcast. Uh, and I would like to offer listeners an opportunity to read Robin Angus's many commentaries on the markets over the years. Uh, a lot of wisdom in there, and I'm going to be making five copies available on a first-come, first-served basis to those who want to read the hard copy and also provide a link on the Moneymakers website to the PDF version, which you can download for free. So, Sebastian, plenty to talk about this year. We have to start by acknowledging that I think uh, 2022 has been a terrible year for investors, uh, one of the worst in historical memory because of its uh, all-pervading nature of the bear market. Tell us how uh, you would see this year in historical context in your own, indeed, investment career. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. And it's lovely to be with you this morning. 2022 has been a, you know, a fascinating year for somebody who's interested in financial history and stock market history. It is one of those years, as you say, that um, investors will want to forget, um, but want to learn from. I don't think it's a particularly exceptional year, except in one case, you know, it reminds me to some extent of 2001, 2002 period, which is a very poor period, which is the time that I launched Troy. You know, there was obviously 2008, uh, which was pretty torrid and very difficult to protect capital during the, the financial crisis uh, and the Lehman bust. Those are the two periods which immediately come to mind when I think of this year. The difference, of course, uh, as you sort of rightly highlight in your question, is that it's been a sort of deflation of a bubble of everything. So whereas in those two instances in 2002 and, and in 2008, there were places to hide. Uh, and the place that was the most obvious place to hide was in bonds. We had falling bond yields and rising bond prices in those periods. And actually, in the first period, yields were actually very high and providing a real return. So there was a place where you could at least offset some of those losses that you had in equities this time around in 2022. Uh, and this was always likely to come because bond markets were so expensive. We'd seen negative nominal yields in um, European bond markets, uh, Swiss bond markets, Japanese bond markets. Uh, we'd only seen very marginally positive yields in US treasuries and in UK gilts. There wasn't anywhere really to go to protect your capital other than cash 
And as we've written at Troy a number of times in the US dollar, and the US dollar did help investors, particularly in obviously in, in the UK, I think sterling's down about 10, 11% over the year. So if you had dollar assets, then you were at least provided some marginal protection. But I think that was the really big difference in 2022 was there was really nowhere to hide. We had seen what effectively was a a sort of deflation in the bubble of everything. And of course, those rising bond yields affected really all asset prices, not just equities, but also um, property and alternatives. The the fact of the matter is the bond market really sets the price of other assets. And so um, if you felt that you were protected by being in other assets, whether they be sort of renewables or property or those diversifiers, the diversifiers really didn't kick in this year at all. Uh, And we're actually, if anything, unhelpful rather than helpful. Yes. And you and I are both quoted uh, approvingly that old saying of Warren Buffett that uh, effectively interest rates are to uh, investment returns what uh, the apple was to gravity or whatever that uh, expression was. And it's been a very decisive change and brings to an end, one has to assume, a long period in which interest rates have been on a declining path and bond yields have been on a declining path. So essentially, the logical conclusion is that that must change the investment game, the investment parameters, the way that you invest. Unless this is just a temporary blip, that has to change the way that investors uh, think and uh, operate. You would agree with that. I can see you're nodding on that. But uh, what do you actually think it means? What are the priorities now for investors? Uh, Do they have to kind of tear up their whole portfolios and, and start again? Yeah, I think that's the really big question. Nodding is not very helpful on the podcast, is it? But I think that that's the fascinating question for investors. I think that we've lived in a a remarkable period, and, and Robin wrote about this a lot in the quarterlies, in the personal assets quarterlies, of zero interest rates and, and negative nominal rates, and the effects that had on asset prices more generally, and how investors invested. Now, I look at parts of the stock market where v- multiples uh, of profits, multiples of earnings being paid by investors went up and up and up because yields went down and down and down. And this was intentional on behalf of policymakers, but effectively by grinding the yields lower and lower, that kept prices rising and valuations rising. And uh, although we have seen this in the past, in the 60s and also in the late 90s, uh, we saw multiples expand uh, very dramatically. We've seen them expand, uh, and, and this isn't just in sort of technology, which obviously gets quite a big press, but in growth more generally, investors were prepared to spend more, partly because in a world where growth was a rare thing and it's what people wanted. And so I've seen, I can sort of name stocks in, in the UK market where good companies, but not companies that changed dramatically over a period of a decade that went up 3x in terms of their valuation. So from sort of a mid-teens multiple to 50 times we got to back in the end of 2021, a, a year ago. Those multiples have deflated somewhat. Uh, that's where a lot of the pain of 2022 has been much more about valuation than anything else. It's been about what price people are prepared to pay for assets and for earnings. Uh, And that's what the rising discount rate does, what the rising bond yields do. But I think, Jonathan, you're right in terms of the fact that I think that we do need to rethink how we go about investing. We've been in this remarkable era my view is I think that era is likely to have come to an end. I, I don't think anybody knows, and I think you can only know with hindsight, really, these things. But I think we need to be prepared. And what I sort of tell my team is that 
we need to be prepared mentally for various outcomes. But I think that the recent past, i.e. probably the last three, four, five years, maybe longer, maybe the last decade, are not necessarily the best experience going forward if inflation is likely to uh, remain stubborn and be more volatile and interest rates are likely to not go back to where they were. You know, we're not likely to see 0.5% on US treasuries as we did in August 2020. So we are in a a new era from that point of view. And that means we've got to be more discerning about what we hold, but also importantly, the price we pay. Yes, indeed. Uh, I think you've made the point in one of your uh, quarterlies that, as you say, we've got to start with the price of bonds because they at least offer you now a positive return, at least the moment their yields have gone down a bit. Uh, but we're now talking, you know, in the US, the yields are over 3% and uh, uh, in the UK, uh, slightly higher. So we can start with that as a sort of base. But unfortunately, of course, we're living through a period when inflation is running at a higher rate than that. So if we do go for that, even as a starting point, we're kind of in the short term, at least, we're locking in a real loss of wealth, aren't we? We are. And I think we need to accept that. I think that we've got so used to making positive real returns that the new world of financial repression and and negative real returns. I think investors need to be more realistic about what they can earn. And, and 2022 is a great reminder of that in that most people have lost money in 2022. And inflation has been at 10%, as we know. So you've lost probably 10% plus whatever your nominal loss is. So I think that we are in a, in a harder world. And I do see it. I do see the sort of inquisitive nature of investors where they expect a positive real return because they've had one for so long. And, you know, I just try and endeavour to make sure that people's expectations are realistic, because, you know, you're probably going to have to take a very large amount of risk and to be quite lucky to be making a positive real return in a world where inflation is 10%, or, you know, even if inflation comes back to mid-single digits, you know, it's not going to necessarily be easy to make a return in excess of inflation in the way that it has been in the past. I mean, people always make the argument that equities obviously are a good inflation hedge over time. Uh, they produce positive real returns over time. Indeed, they have to. Otherwise, all the companies that are quoted on it would go out of business. But it is only over the medium to longer term, is it not? So if we just look at the stock market first, then, just in, in isolation, you say that the valuations have come down, which they have indeed. But what we haven't yet seen is uh, earnings come down significantly. Earnings estimates have been reduced, but they're still positive for next year in the US at least. Is that really plausible? I mean, how can that really be the case? So you can already hear brokers saying, well, actually, the American economy is being surprisingly resilient and actually maybe it will be okay next year. Even someone like um, Professor Jeremy Siegel has been making bullish noises about equities, author of Stocks for the Long Run. Well, he's talking about next 12 months. He's saying that would be a good period for the equity market. Is that Uh, actually plausible? Well, I think it's likely. I mean, it's quite Panglossian, really. And there is a view that everything's going to be fine next year, that we have had a bit of a reset, that we're going to have a soft landing, or maybe there isn't going to be a downturn at all. But I think it's hard to reconcile with the remarkable tightening of interest rates that we've seen over the last year. I mean, if we were sitting here a year ago, US interest rates would be 0.25%. You know, and today they're, what, four, four and a half. So we have seen the sharpest tightening of interest rates in the US since the Federal Reserve began in 1913, over 100 years. And, and the, the other thing is, is that the Fed has been very outspoken in terms of saying we've got to get inflation down and we're going to continue to tighten. And actually, the market's been very slow. It's not wanted to listen to what central bankers have had to say 
which has been telling because each time central bankers have spoken, markets have fallen. They've been travelling, hopefully, and then their hopes have been dashed by the idea that interest rates will continue to tighten and continue to tighten into next year. Um, you know, they want to see demand fall. Yes, demand has been resilient, partly due to the delay of, of spending post-COVID and savings that were built up during COVID. But those are now being eked out. And we're beginning to, I suspect, come to an end to that um, delayed spending. We saw that a little bit in the UK as well, but clearly that's come to an end here. But no, I think that that's quite hopeful uh, and optimistic. No reason, I suppose, not to be hopeful. But I think that the question as to what happens in 2023 is, as you say, going to be about earnings, whereas 2022 was about multiple contraction and valuation. 23 is going to be about profits. And we've already seen some signs of profit downgrades, but generally speaking, uh, looking into the next year, which is so often the case with analysts, um, they're optimistic, perhaps they listen to what the companies tell them, and they generally forecast growth. And I suspect that within those tightening conditions, demand will fall, and therefore earnings will fall as a result of that. So I think that earnings are going to be the key issue, and profits are going to be the key issue for 2023. And the thing is, Jonathan, we haven't really seen what I would call a normal recession for quite a long time. People haven't really experienced a normal recession. And by that, I mean a recession like the ones we had in the 80s and the 90s, where effectively a central bank tightened where we had inflation and tightened sort of into that downturn. I remember it well when I started my career in the early 90s, that recession was quite prolonged and pretty painful and was very different to the sort of shallow downturn we saw in the early 2000s, which was offset by very uh, aggressive fiscal stimulus uh, by Gordon Brown. And then obviously in 2007, 2008, during the financial crisis, which was very sort of bank financials driven, didn't necessarily affect the full wider economy, but affected the banking system very materially. And then obviously in 2020, during the pandemic, it was very, very short and sharp. I mean, really, the downturn lasted a barely a quarter or two. And and, and from a stock market point of view, it was it was a matter of weeks rather than a matter of months or years. So I think we've got to probably look back to the recessions of the early 90s or even early 80s to look back at what a sort of normal recession looks like. And I think it can be longer and can be deeper than perhaps people are expecting today. Yeah, well, personally, I fear that's the case. But uh, there's always room for other views, of course. I mean, the old saying is that the Fed will go on tightening until something cracks. And uh, we've seen uh, one or two possible cracks. We saw that in the UK gilts market with the unfortunate, well, I don't know which adjective you would use. I'm going to stick with unfortunate for the moment, the trust interim. I could use a much stronger word. You know, we've seen a little you know, signs of trouble in the, in the gilts market. And I guess the problem the central banks have is, that on the one hand, their primary responsibility is still you know, financial stability. So if anything does start to blow up in a big way, they have to sort of step in and reverse what they were trying to do to beat inflation. And I guess one could see a, a scenario in which something bad does happen. Some big crisis blows up somewhere. A lot of debt out there. You'd think that would be where it might start. Um, and then they might have to reverse course. But in that scenario, that isn't particularly positive for the equity markets either, is it, or for the credit markets, because it means that something really bad has happened. So it is hard to see how this is all going to play out. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I think there's a mistake which has been quite evident this year, which is that lower rates equal rising equities. And it depends, obviously, the reason for the lower rates. And actually, usually markets don't bottom till rates bottom. So if you think about 2008-9 or 
or you think about what happened in 2020. You know, rates are peaking now, they're not bottoming. And a pivot in terms of what's been talked about this year in terms of a peaking of rates as being something very optimistic. I mean, yes, if you have a peaking of rates and a shallow recession or a soft landing, no recession at all, that may be one thing. But I think that, as you say, the reasons for the cuts in interest rates when they do come, and I suspect probably it'll be the, the second half of 2023, but, but we'll see. Obviously, it depends on an event. As, as you suggest, we may get an event which triggers um, that pivot. But that will be because of weakening economic environment, coming back to what I said about earnings. And so generally speaking, that's not necessarily the time to be buying equities. It's more when interest rates start to bottom rather than when they're just peaking and beginning to decrease. So I'm not necessarily convinced that that's something cracking. As you said, we've had gilts, um, which interestingly, the Bank of England managed to deal with that crisis themselves without the intervention of the Fed. And it's the Fed that's going to be the key here in terms of shifting expectations in terms of rates. We've also seen what J.K. Garth-Braith would describe as the revelation or the revealing of the bezel with the likes of FTX, which we've seen at previous periods in the cycle, as we did with Enron and WorldCom, I remember very well, back in 2002. So this is the time as liquidity dries up that those sort of accidents become revealed by markets generally, which is uh, sort of both interesting as a sort of historian, but also um, it's, and not particularly surprising. But in, the, in this cycle, having been so long and so prolonged and with rates having been so low, you know, it wouldn't be surprised to see more of those in the next year. Yeah, I, I fear that might be the case. And the other problem, of course, that the central banks have is that they will be worried about what happens to the housing market, what happens if mortgage rates go up, if, if bond yields stay this level, mortgage rates are going to go up. So what happens, crucially, is what happens to what we call the long bond, the 30-year the, the bond, 20, 30-year bonds, which are where the mortgages are priced off and so on. At the moment, that, that remains quiescent. The markets seem to believe, the bond markets seem to be telling us that actually it's all, all right, this inflation is going to disappear within you know pretty quick order, and that will then take the pressure off the mortgages and so on. But the central banks will have this problem that if mortgage rates go up too much, people simply can't afford it, and then there'll be political pressure and so on which they'll find very hard to resist. So ignoring next year, which is you know a short-term period when we can't really predict what's going to happen, but this long-term expectation that everything is going to be fine again, we're going back to this uh, Goldilocks world where uh, interest rates are going to be low, inter- inflation is going to be low. Well, did you buy that one as well? I mean, there's a short-term argument, there's also the longer-term argument. Of course, Jonathan, that is possible. That is possible that we revert to a Goldilocks scenario. But I think that to be objective, there are a lot of trends that were in place during the last decade in terms of globalisation, in terms of the sort of general sort of liberal pro-growth policies, uh, which I think have changed. I think we've seen, you know, supply chains um, interrupted and are still seeing them, you know, in China. We've seen news of that in the last couple of weeks in terms of production being affected by COVID in China. So we've seen these interruptions. We've seen higher commodity prices I suspect we'll probably see shorter cycles in the future. We've been got used to much, much longer cycles of sort of seven to 10 years. But I suspect that's probably less likely with the sort of shortages that we've seen in commodities uh, and volatility in commodity prices. So I think that, look, there, of course, there's a possibility that we revert back. But I think we need to be prepared for a more bumpy ride in the future 
than we have experienced in the last um, you know, five to 10 years, frankly. And I think it'd be very optimistic to expect inflation having been let out of the bag and got to double digits for it to revert back to sort of 2%, go back to target and stay at target in a way that it has been or even below target for a prolonged period of time. You know, I suspect that's it's very hopeful. Of course, it's possible. And I know there are some examples that are given, particularly from the post-war period in 1946-47, when clearly there was that huge amount of demand. We saw inflation go up to, I think it was 20%, and then came clattering back down in sort of 47-48. So it has happened in the past in sort of similar-ish kinds of circumstances. But I suspect the world's a different place from then. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure that that's an appropriate example to give, but we'll see. Uh, but I think I think the key thing is, is I think investors need to keep an open mind on that and not hope necessarily that everything's going to be perfect and we're going to revert back to inflation of sort of 1% to 2% that we've been used to for such a long period and certainly the last decade. I mean, I would make the comment perhaps that what did happen after the war was, though even that was before I was born, even in 46, 47, uh, what did happen was that we had this long period of financial repression, the interest rates were held down and uh, there were negative returns and the bond market basically got killed. So bond investors paid the price for about 20 years. They made basically real losses uh, after inflation for about 20, 30 years even. And that's, of course, what then led to the great bond market revival. So that's another risk out there. If the market, if the bond market is wrong about those long-term things, and if financial repression is here to stay, that's going to tell us that bonds are not going to be that good a return in real terms. So let's talk about personal assets and your other funds you manage at Troy Asset Management. You've been managing personal assets since uh, 2008, as I said, following the untimely death of Ian Rushbrook. And the objective of personal assets, as I'm sure all listeners know, is to uh, preserve and grow capital in that order. It's one of the a small handful of trusts that set that out as their objective. And obviously, you say this has been a tough year. And I think, uh, well, share price total return over the last 12 months is, I think, minus 3.5%. So, you know, even you have struggled to make a positive return in that period. Absolutely. No, it's, I think it's certainly from a Trojan Fund point of view, from where I've been managing it for longer, 22 years, I think, obviously, there's a, a few days to go, Jonathan. But I think we've had two down years of the Trojan Fund, which were both down three. So this will be my worst year. But I mean, low single digit negative return, you know, frankly, I'll take in a year where I think the difference that I highlighted at the beginning was there have been almost nowhere, if not nowhere to hide. Whereas in those previous instances, there were actually places to hide. So yeah, but we're down low single digits, which is, is disappointing. But I think Compared to looking around, you know, everywhere else, it's not bad. That, that's the sort of amount we can claw back pretty quickly, which is what personal assets is about. You know, we don't have to take huge amounts of risks in order to get back to square one. The problem with uh, those with drawdowns of 20, 30, 40 percent is they need to take ever higher degrees of risk in order to get back to where they started. Yes. And if you look at the surveys of wealth managers, for example, who manage private client portfolios, like personal asset trust is, is explicitly directed at private investors with a, a kind of cautious outlook. The average uh, wealth manager has produced a return of between 10 and 20%, depending on the risk profile of their uh, of their clients. So you're certainly ahead of that. Anyway, at least that's uh, that. Down 10, or down 10 to 20%. Well, 10 for the most conservative, 20% for the you know, normal yeah. risk. So I sort of think we've done our job this year, albeit that it's disappointing that we haven't been able to eke out a a positive return for our investors. But I think that comes back to the point that I made about being realistic about the returns that are out there, that are available. I mean, with hindsight, you said there was nowhere to hide. I mean, the only places of significance you could hide 
uh, would you say within the dollar and you did that to some extent by increasing your dollar exposure we definitely benefited from that so the tune of about four or five percent yeah but it could, of course, also have reinvested in commodities, which is the only asset class which really has gone up for reasons that are obvious, including the Ukraine war, which we haven't yet mentioned as a factor. Is that something you would never invest in commodities? I suspect the answer to that is yes, but uh, would you ever? Or if so, how would you go about it? And do you think you perhaps you should have done that uh, in the year just gone? Well, obviously, with a benefit of hindsight, we should have done that. Um, and in particular, the sort of obvious call was in oil. But I think even in oil, it's not been easy. I mean, oil did very well in the first quarter. But actually, for those who were sort of sucked in in the sort of late spring, early summer, you know, the oil price actually isn't up since then. And I think it's pretty much flat this year. So I just think trading commodities and, and really you do have to trade rather than invest in oil or, or iron or whatever it might be. It's historically been incredibly difficult. And those cycles are often very, very short lived. So, uh, yeah, no, it's not something we're not going to suddenly start buying oil ETFs or get copper exposure. I don't think that's the way that we do it. I mean, and just to touch on gold, which has clearly not been great this year, which we do have an exposure to. And I think longer term, I think that will be and has been a beneficiary of this kind of environment, a financial repression environment and an environment where inflation is higher. I think gold's got slightly bad press this year because yes, it's come off in dollar terms, but Jonathan, gold and the dollar's been incredibly strong. Uh, I think it's actually held up pretty well. I think it's up mid to high single digits in sterling terms, certainly up in sterling terms, up in yen terms, up in euro terms, uh, just not in dollar terms, but actually it's not down a lot. That's the way that we seek to protect from, I think, the factors that you're suggesting. Uh, And I suspect once interest rates peak out, then gold will do somewhat better. We're still in an era of debasement, frankly. So in that environment, gold should do investors pretty well. So we are sort of in there in a, in a roundabout way. And actually, when push comes to shove and the crises come about, whether it be during the invasion of Ukraine or COVID, you know, gold has kicked in pretty well. And it did, it did help us during that period of the invasion of Ukraine back in sort of February, March time of this year. So it has contributed, certainly in sterling, but less so in, in dollars. I, I think that investors obsess about the dollar price and don't think about what it is in other currencies. And actually, it's done its job for us this year. Yes, in local currency terms, in many places, it has done its job. I was going to mention gold only because the only major difference that really has happened in, I guess, in the outlook at personal assets since you took over is that gold is now a significant part of the portfolio. Uh, I think it's about 9%, something like that. And of course, Ian Rushbrook refused to invest in gold, and much to uh, Robin Angus's uh, dismay. Yeah, it's one thing Robin and I agreed with, and Robin was very pleased that we added gold to the portfolio. I think people describe a portfolio that's sort of ultimately built to last as having some exposure to gold for some time. A sort of cockroach portfolio, the famous cockroach portfolio, which is 25% in cash, 25% in gold, 25% in bonds, and 25% in equities. We haven't got to those sort of extremes, but I think it does have a role to play within a portfolio, especially when you're in an era where you're not in a real positive real interest rate environment. And, and that we haven't really been there now for quite a long time, and I suspect we're not going to get there for some time to come. I mean, this year being a classic case in point, where interest rates are what? In the UK, 3%. In the US, 4 for a bit. And inflation, 
you know, flirting with double digits. So definitely a negative real interest rate environment. You know, can you see a situation where interest rates are well above the level of inflation? I suspect not. And I suspect not for quite some time. I just don't think that's really affordable. And so in those environments, gold has a role to play. And that's why it does well during those periods of instability. And also, I think we've proven over the years that it's been very cheap insurance. So, I mean, many decide to use derivatives, um, buy put options to protect their portfolios. Uh, you know, our preference, my preference, is, is not to take that expense, which is a definite guaranteed loss with the potential for upside if, if the protection kicks in and kicks in in the way that you want it to. Gold's not necessarily always absolutely accurate in terms of the uh, portfolio insurance that it provides. But if you look back in, in 2020 or, or 2022, or frankly, during the financial crisis, it's actually done a pretty good job in a period where there is dislocation and where there is a, a sort of flight to quality and a move away from risk assets. So I think it has a role to play. I always say it's not a permanent holding. I know, you know it's been a holding in personal assets now for 13 years. So it might feel permanent, but I'm certainly open-minded about the fact that it won't be necessarily be there forever. But I just think in the kind of environment that we're in at the moment, I still think it's appropriate. Well, you mentioned real interest rates, and of course, we've talked about that a lot so far. When they're falling, that's generally good for gold. Of course, your, I think the disappointment, or perhaps a relative disappointment this year, has been the performance of Index Linked this year, mm-hmm. which are designed to provide real returns over time. But they're also affected by real interest rates. And... Uh, I guess the disappointment for you and for a number of other wealth preservation fund managers has been that IndexLink have sold off uh, quite dramatically as well. What's going on there and what's your feeling about them now? I mean, has that been overdone and therefore there's potential in there now? Or, or return potential, should I say? There's definitely return potential in there now. And we were not in the UK IndexLink, thank goodness. I mean, as you know, Jonathan, long-dated index linked, I think, got down to about 70 75% at one point, which is incredibly painful. I mean, it's like being in a sort of very high-risk non-profit tech stock rather than a, a bond. And I think index linked, people are very careful not to call them inflation linked, because they certainly haven't been inflation linked in one aspect, which is their, their performance. You would have thought that with inflation at 10%, that uh, index links would have protected you against those higher levels of inflation. And what they've done is effectively behave like a a lower yielding bond with a little bit of offset from that inflation that you're obviously getting in the coupon and and the lower coupon and the capital. But obviously, duration was the thing that was the thing not to own in 2022. So index linked, if you were in long duration index linked, then that was particularly painful. I mean, I'm pleased to say that we managed duration very, very carefully and prudently. And the duration, i.e. the length of the bonds that we own, on average, were about five to six years this year. It's a lesson that I learned very painfully in 2013 when real yields rose, was that I had duration in double digits sort of 10, 12 years back then, and it was painful. At least we had our duration low because we're realising that we're taking duration risk within our equities, and we don't want to double up on that duration risk. But I think that Bonds and index-linked bonds did not perform in the way. There was a, a hope, I think, by investors like me that there would be a sort of passing of the ways that index-linked would attract investors looking to protect themselves from inflation. And that didn't really happen or hasn't happened yet. And I think, again, we need to be open-minded and optimistic about the fact that I suspect that that's something that's still to come. Real yields have risen now in the UK uh, I think they're still negative last time I looked, but in the US they're now positive. 
So you get a positive real yield around between 1% and 2% on your US tips, now your US index linked. And, you know, I think that's going to be a pretty attractive return. I mean, it's not mouthwatering, but I think that that's not bad. Uh, coming back to what I said about being realistic about one's returns in the future, you know, that's not a bad return. You know, a year ago, that would have been minus one, one and a half. So, so the fact that the bonds have fallen in value make them considerably more attractive in terms of the future returns that they can offer. So I think that, yes, I think index needs to be particularly disappointing. I mean, they've hurt us. They haven't hurt us, you know, dreadfully. Um, but I think if, coming back to your point about our return, if, if index links have been flat or even up this year, then we would have been up this year. So, I mean, that's been the key differentiator uh, in terms of driving our performance in the fact that index links haven't really performed particularly well. I think it all comes back to your point about the fact that long bond yields are still quite low and are expecting inflation to come back down and stay low. The key thing is what's called the break-evens. I don't want to get too much into the technicals of index linked, um, but effectively the long-term inflation expectations of those bonds, they still remain very low and anchored as the Jay Powell refers to them. Those long-term inflation expectations are, are set at about between two and two and a half percent. If those were to start going up, and I suspect they will, then that's where we start making our money index linked, because that's really what generates the return is those, those break-evens starting to go up, those inflation expectations starting to go up. So the long-term inflation expectations for index linked haven't yet moved. If they do, when they do, that's when index linked should do very well. So while we've disappointed, we're not totally depressed about our holdings index linked. Fortunately, we weren't taking very big risk and we didn't own UK index linked, which is where a lot of the real pain has been because the value differential between UK index linked and US was actually quite wide as we came into this year, i.e. UK index linked were very expensive for, for the technical reasons that we now know about, uh, which were exposed during the mini budget episode. So, I mean, the point about this all being that your holdings of index linked, uh, US tips in particular, very substantial part of your portfolio, you know, around a third of it, I think. That was earlier this year anyway, not quite sure what the figure no, is today. It's, it's mid-30s. Right. So the big changes you've made, essentially, is you've bought a lot of UK gilts, basically, when they've sold off recently, and um, you've reduced your equity exposure. Just to explain to us what your equity exposure is and whether the figure you read in the reports is actually the, the net figure. In other words, if it says 37%, is that what it is? Is that the net equity exposure? Or do you offset that uh, in other ways? I think we declare the, the equity exposure on the, on the back of the fact sheet. So the equity exposure is about a quarter of the portfolio at the moment, which is the lowest it's been since 2008. You know, we still are concerned that equity valuations, we've had a very, very long upward move in valuations of equities. And, you know, coming back to what we were saying earlier about the risk to earnings and the risk of a recession, you know, we think that uh, we want to be careful about the amount of equity risk that we want to take. And we came into this year with a relatively modest exposure in the low 30s of percent. But as the year evolved, particularly the first half of the year, and we'd, we'd taken that number down during 2021 uh, quite materially. I mean, if we hadn't done anything during 2021, I think our exposure would have been well in the 40s, if not 50%. We took a lot of money out um, during the, the peaks of the market in late 2021. But I recognised with what was occurring in the spring and probably post the invasion of Ukraine that we probably actually ultimately needed to do more to reduce the equity risk, and which we did in the early summer. 
when we saw that rally in the early summer, we actually used that as an opportunity to decrease our equity exposure mod modestly, but it just decreased it further, which with the benefit of hindsight was the right thing to have done. Uh, when, when Ian was running the portfolio, you'll remember, we actually got down to 100% liquid or 0% or in equities in 2008. We haven't gone to those extremes, but we are very conservatively positioned at the moment because we think that um, basically the equity bear market's work isn't done yet. Yeah, I mean, I was going to pick up on that point. We've touched on equities already, but you do said in your latest quarterly that the repricing is further to go, which is, or you suspect the repricing is further to go, which is a polite way of saying <laughs> the worst, we haven't seen the worst yet. <laughs> That's what experience is telling me, that there's more work in this bear market to go yet. I think there are distinct similarities, uh, Jonathan, between this bear market and the one of 2000 to 2003 which, if you recall, was almost three years long and in particular had similarities from the sort of tech bubble and the reversal of the excesses of tech in particular and growth as well during the late 90s. And we saw PE multiple contraction. We also saw a downturn, as I said earlier, a modest downturn this time. Obviously, these things are never exactly the same, but there are particular similarities in terms of the fact that we saw very large retail participation during COVID, uh, retail investor participation. That was evidenced by huge speculation that we saw in meme stocks, you know, the likes of GameStop and AMC, effectively people speculating gambling in the stock market, partly because they couldn't gamble elsewhere. Sport, sport had stopped, and so um, gambling sitting at home meant investing in the stock market. We hadn't seen that sort of retail participation in the stock market since 1999, I don't think. Not to that real extreme. And that was the, the real peak of the bull market with hindsight to March 2021. Uh, and then that rolled on, the dominoes fell from there on in, in terms of a decline in valuations and a, and a reset in terms of that speculation gradually waning and a realisation that people have been overpaying based on a bond market, which was where yields were incredibly depressed, where there was nowhere else to go other than speculate to generate a return. And so I think that the similarities with 2000, 2001, 2002 are there. The difference is, is that, as I said earlier, you've got those rising rates and you've got rising interest rates, uh, which you didn't have then. So you've got other parts of the stock market, which are also exposed to the downturn, which wasn't the case then. So that's the difference this time. But there are definitely similarities in terms of the PE multiple contraction that we've experienced in the last year or so. And um, yeah, no, I, I suspect we've got a way to travel yet. I mean, one difference back then, as I recall quite well, was that a lot of money was taken basically out of other equities to put into the tech stocks during the tech bubble. And they, their valuations became extraordinarily low. And I remember uh, Anthony Bolton, for example, telling me in summer of 2000 that, uh, you know, this was a sort of value investor's dream scenario because you could buy really good companies at ridiculous valuations. Uh, you can't do that today, can you? I mean, you own some quality stocks and they've sold off and their valuation has come down, but they're not sort of glaringly cheap either, are they? Absolutely not. And I, I remember that very well. I remember that time I was running the GC pension fund. You could buy companies like Associated British Foods with a, a billion pounds of cash on its balance sheet on a PE in, in single figures. Uh, you know, there were huge opportunities for people, even, I mean, not deep value investors. I mean, not people looking for, for extremes, just but there were some solid perhaps rather boring businesses, which were very, very lowly valued and offered a very good, you know, high single digit, if not a low double digit return back then. And you didn't have to take a lot of risk. 
The difference now, as you say, is companies generally have taken over more debt over the last years. There aren't businesses with huge amounts of cash on their balance sheets, with the exception of technology companies, but they were highly valued anyway. So no, there aren't those classic value opportunities which there were during, two, and I remember them well, you know, when I launched the Trojan Fund, and Ian and Robin wrote about this in their quarterlies, that the um, growth equities had sucked demand out of those value equities, which provided a wonderful opportunity. I think what's been interesting this year is that, well, obviously growth investors, and I remember listening to you on one of your podcasts, the last one or the last one, but one, uh, where growth investors have obviously struggled this year, but actually value investors have struggled as well. I mean, as you said, unless you've got the commodities markets right, airlines, house builders, consumer cyclicals, generally smaller companies, you know, those haven't been great places to be either. So as a value investor, it hasn't been easy this last year. I've got two more questions for you before we just come back to talk about Robin Angus and his legacy. Number one is, again, going back historically, you made the point that uh, rising bond yields have been very bad for uh, property and many alternative assets, which have been something of a, of, a, of a lifesaver until the second half of this year. But if you go back to history and, you know, post-war period and so on, you know, commercial property is typically seen as a, uh, as a real asset that will deliver above inflation returns over time, but will suffer during recessions. You've never owned property, I don't think, since you've been in charge. Is that something that uh, personal assets would ever look at? I don't think so. This is something that Robin and I were absolutely on the same page on. We had a number of views on this. Firstly, in order to generate a, a decent return on property, you really need to gear it. And therefore, you know, those returns that you see on property ungeared are not particularly attractive. And obviously, by being geared, when things get difficult, as we've seen in the last year, the returns really can be quite poor. And also companies can come back to you for more capital. Uh, particularly if the balance sheet becomes too stretched. And we've seen that time and time again during downturns. Property companies tend to come to investors when property valuations are, are depressed and equity investors are not necessarily wiped out, but certainly suffer huge drawdowns in those instances because probably the gearing was too high going into the downturn. And the other thing is, is that you know this is a trust specifically for private investors and private individuals, most of the private individuals who will be shareholders and personal assets will have a house, will have exposure to property already. And people say, well, commercial property is different from residential property. It's not that different in the way that it performs, I don't think. I don't think that's a diversification buying commercial property for investors. So I doubt we would go into commercial property. I mean, never say never. I have owned it at Troy particularly in the early noughties when it was it was very depressed and offering a very good return, even not particularly geared. So never say never, but highly unlikely, I suspect. Then my next question before coming back to Robin, I guess, is about the dollar. I mean, the dollar has been incredibly strong for a long period of time, and that's had ripples right across the investment universe that uh, you can invest in and, and indeed most investors can invest in. It has sold off, and uh, a lot of people believe that maybe we are seeing another big change in the direction of travel for the dollar, as we had back in uh, in 1985, for example, big change mm. driven by policymakers in that occasion. What do you think about the dollar? Because that could have a big implication for you know for your portfolio and for anybody's uh, portfolio. If that is a big change, if that reversal of the strength of the dollar is going to persist, yeah. do you think it's likely it will persist? And if so, what impact will it have? I think it's hard to know because I think that everybody's pointing out that the yield differential is still wide for the for the US compared to elsewhere. I think the US can tolerate higher interest rates than than elsewhere in the UK, for example. I mean, the UK, it's quite clear that the Bank of England has been reluctant to raise rates. 
although it's talked a good game, whereas the US has been able to raise rates more quickly and more aggressively because the economy can can withstand that. Coming to your earlier points about whether we're seeing a downturn in 2023 in a recession and falling earnings, I think in that environment, the dollar will still probably do okay. You know, I think that it's clearly got very, very overbought in the autumn um, during the the mini budget saga, but um, elsewhere as well, again, versus the euro and the yen, uh, it's clearly backed up. But it's hard to get desperately excited about sterling. I still think the interest rate differentials will be are likely to be higher in the US than in the UK. But I think I think probably quite a lot of the dollar's work's been done in terms of the upside that we saw a year ago, that in terms of its protective abilities. I wouldn't necessarily see a rampant sell-off in the dollar in the way that we saw in the mid-1980s that you allude to after we almost got to parity before. And also, actually, 2003, we saw a a gradual sell-off in the dollar uh, through that cycle, 2003 to 2006. But that's because US interest rates were so low compared to elsewhere. So I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't be overly negative about the dollar, but I think probably it's not offering the upside that it was a year ago. And therefore, things, I mean, we don't invest in emerging markets. When we talk about Robin Agus, we can read some of his comments about emerging markets. Yeah. We don't. No, we, we, fortunately, we haven't had to learn that lesson. <laughs> and you don't have any significant exposure to Japan particularly either, do you? Though some people think that might be an interesting area to look at. You don't do that again on risk grounds? Mm. Or? I think people have been saying it's an interesting area to look at for about the last 30 years, Jonathan. They have. Um, it's so difficult, Japan. Uh, I'm so glad I don't invest there. And I think you've got to know your limitations and your areas of expertise. And I think that's actually a strength rather than a weakness. You know, know your area of competence. And we haven't invested in Japan. I wouldn't say we would never invest in Japan. Um, we might very selectively. But I think that it's, it's a very different culture and a, a very different way that the economy is, is run and the companies are managed for shareholders. And so I, I, it's not an area that I think that we would go at immediately. You know, I, I have seen it time and time and time again. People talk about Japan as being uh, the place to be. And, and actually, so far, throughout my entire career, it's not hurt me by being out of Japan. Of course, your career started after the 1980s when Japan became 60% of the world's equity market capitalization. Hard hard to believe now. So let's come on and finish by talking about the late lamented Robin Agus, who died earlier this year, very sadly. One reason for talking about him is that he was a very beautiful, witty writer about investment, as well as being very influential in the development of personal assets from uh, the tiny thing it began as to what it's become today. What's happened is that uh, Robin used to write all the quarterly reports for Personal Assets Trust for many, many years. So something getting on for nearly 30 years, I think. So what he did after he retired from the board uh, a couple of years ago, he uh, started to uh, sort of collate them into an edited version. And you've now basically published that, both as a hard copy and as a PDF, which you can, as I said, you can download the PDF from the Personal Assets website, or I'll give the link also on the Moneymakers website. But also, uh, you very kindly agreed to make five copies available to uh, listeners to this podcast. So if you are interested in getting the full hardback version, and it does run to about 180 pages, so if you find reading PDFs on screen quite difficult, uh, this might be a good option for you. It's full of wit and wisdom, I think it's fair to say, as well as some of uh, Robin's uh, idiosyncrasies, idiosyncratic views about the world, at least to a sort of ordinary Englishman. He's uh, as a committed Scottish nationalist and... Uh, high church man. He's, uh, he has a very interesting take on a number of things and a deep love of the classics. 
So well, tell us first of all uh, about your experience with Robin and uh, why he was such a, a good person to work with. Well, Robin was, I mean, not only was he the founder of Pat with Ian, but he was an outstanding analyst. I mean, you would have first come across him, uh, Jonathan, when he was an analyst at Canton Out West or at Wood Mackenzie, where he worked with Hamish Buchan, uh, the old chairman of, uh, ex-chairman of, of personal assets. You know, he was a polymath and a wordsmith and, and yet uh, sort of very much a gentleman of the old school. And I always say that he was the best schoolmaster I never had. He always helped me in terms of my sort of thinking, report writing. His experience was he was never actually an investor. as such. He never invested directly into stocks. He invested through trusts. And, you know, he was this wonderful foil to Ian Rushbrook, but Ian ran the money. Robin didn't run the money. He was effectively his foil and outstanding communicator. And they started off with these uh, investment quarterlies, which Robin wrote for Ian, starting in the early 1990s, in 1994, um, after Robin left Broking. And Robin went onto the board. Uh, and that team worked uh, incredibly effectively until Ian's untimely death in, in 2008. And when... Troy became involved with Pat. It was sort of obvious that Robin should continue to do that communication role. And, and it was a pleasure for me to get to know Robin and, and really effectively have him as a colleague and again have that sort of foil. I mean, I used to speak to him two or three times a week um, about what I was doing with the portfolio, what I thought about the world, what he thought about the world. And then he would reflect that with, as you say, his wonderful idiosyncrasies and his classical references, which uh, so many shareholders very much enjoyed. And they were really the voice of common sense. I mean, Pat, the whole Pat proposition was about allocating a material amount of capital, which he communicated well. And I think that the, the whole abolition of the discount and the discount control mechanism that they put in place in 1999 and others, I'm pleased to say, have followed, albeit not many, there's still only a handful of trusts that really have a hard DCM. And we've seen the pain of discount widening in 2022. Uh, so another example of the double whammy of NAVs falling and the discount widening, which is very painful for investors. So we, you know, Robin was extremely good at, at communicating uh, the reason why we have the, the discount control uh, mechanism in place and, and stick with it. But also, I think, and one of the reasons why I would encourage people to to read the anthology. And we've handed out the quarterlies in the past, uh, anthologies of the quarterlies, but this is, this is a bit more special, I think, in that it's extracts from the quarterlies on different subjects. And one other thing I think Robin was very good was talking to private investors and identifying what they actually needed. And a, a wonderful example of two investors who got, I think it's $50 million back in the late 1990s and gave them through a, a private bank. And within two years, uh, they had $25 million, uh, and then they handed it to another private bank, and within two more years, uh, they got $12.5 million. And I think that he tells the story about what protection means to investors, and that different investors have different temperaments, need different things, and that also different performance, performance varies depending on how it's generated. And uh, he talks a lot about risk and how how risk determines what sort of returns that you get. But different returns effectively can be generated through taking very different types of risk. And I, I just think it's a, it's a wonderful sort of educational piece. And I think it will stand the test of time. Many of the things written there were written in the late 90s or, or early noughties, but still effectively 
are uh, as important today as really they were, whether it's talking about investment trust gearing and how investment trusts are structured, or whether it talks about the the effects of very low interest rates. So no, I think it's uh, an enjoyable read, but also one that you can learn an awful lot from as a as either an experienced investor or an inexperienced one. I would entirely agree. And I think as, a, as an introduction to investment trusts in an accessible way, uh, there's so much wisdom in there, as well as, um, as I said, some splendidly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, forthright comments on, on the world. I just oh. thought I'd mention one, which was about he, one of his bugbears was the fact that, I uh, know you take this seriously, that uh, annual reports have got longer and longer and longer, filled with more and more jargon and, and useless information repeated endlessly. Uh, and he wants to try and he wanted to keep trying to cause. And I remember him saying he quoted these words, which appear in the uh, in the annual report of every company, investment trust included. The directors are responsible for preparing the annual report, including the financial statements, which are required to be prepared in accordance with applicable United Kingdom law and accounting standards. Well, what do you know? Says Robin. I bet you thought the annual report was prepared by Heart of Midlothian Football Club, in accordance with the laws of Outer Mongolia. I'm glad that's been cleared up. So <laughs> there's lots of entertaining. There are lots, there are lots of gems in there, and he referred to. I mean, it comes back to the conversation we've been having. You know, he referred to the Alice in Wonderland of negative interest rates, and you know, we're now exiting that that era. And he identified that era and how how difficult it was for investors and for the potential to make mistakes. And uh, you know, it's, and also unlisted investments. You know, which we are also now seeing the downside of. He talked about the fact that they were the riskier than listed investments uh, and manage them makes rearing children or breeding horses seem restful. I think many investors who've got private unlisted investments, um, certainly over the last year and perhaps over 2023, might also be be wishing they were rearing children or breeding horses, but we'll see. They might well reflect on that indeed. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sebastian, for taking the time to talk to me uh, today. This is our last podcast of the year. This uh, anthology is called A Shared Journey, and you can find details from the places I've mentioned. And on a first-come, first-served basis, if you can send me your name and address, I will be happy to arrange for you to get a hardback copy of this uh, very entertaining and full of wisdom tome. I should perhaps also mention that, uh, you know, the Queen said that, well, why did nobody foresee the global financial crisis coming? Well, uh, Ian Rushbrook and Robin did foresee it, and it's all written down. You can see the evidence in this uh, tome. So that's it for this week, and uh, look forward to uh, returning to our normal cycle of podcasts in the new year. And, uh, well, we're all agog to find out what kind of year it's going to be. Is it going to be uh, Professor Jeremy Siegel's moment of triumph, where we have a soaring stock market again, or is it going to be uh, perhaps the opposite, as uh, as uh, some of us and I think you, Sebastian, fear? Anyway, that's it for this week. Thank you all for uh, for listening. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.